History, lecture number 66, we are, um, we're in a time of, uh, of tremendous individuals and I occasionally in history will take time to talk about them and their lives because not only are we doing biography that way, but through their lives we also can pick up a tremendous amount about the times in which they lived. So we're in the second century of the Common Era, according to the non-Jewish calendar, and um, we talked yesterday about Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Um, his contemporary was Rabbi Meir Balanes, who is an enigma. He is a mysterious figure. He descended from Nero, the king, the emperor of Rome that we talked about before. Um, he's identified himself as a gear. How does that happen if Nero was a gear? Uh, he emphasized the importance, we, we learned from him that a person should learn not from one but from three different Rabbanim, three different Rebbe's so that one can get, uh, this is in Abbas Rabbi Nassan, that one can get uh, different perspectives and indeed his primary Rebbe's were Rebbe Akiva, Rebbe Ishmael and Elisha Ben Abuya, Acher, famously. We talked, we've seen Rebbe Meir, this is not the first time we're introducing but let's, he, he's worthy of, of, a cer- of a certain amount of focus. Um, we also know that, like many of the Gdolim, he had an exceedingly difficult life. Yeah. So um, he was called, on the one hand, he's known in the Gemara Neruvin, he's referred to as Nehorai. Nehorai means light, or the enlightened one. And that Meir was another name that was given to him because he not only had light, he light, of course, being the light of Torah, but he shed light, he enlightened others, Chazal, in his halacha, and that's Meir, he gives over light from Or, if you know the Hefil in Hebrew, causing causative uh, structure, Meir, he gives light, he causes light. In fact, Rabbeinu Hananel tells us that his real name was Meisha. So, and so, in other words, he's neither Nehorai nor Meir, he's Meisha. There's something even in his name that gives him this mystery. He was... Interestingly, in the Gemara Yuma, we learned, we learned so much from Rabbi Meir. Giving a summary of his life was more or less a struggle of what not to say, because there really is a, there's, there's, there's an awful lot to say about him. Um, he was medayik on a person's name. He said that your name reflected something of your essence. And so with this, the fact that his name is hard to pin down itself reflected something about his own enigmatic uh, nature. We know that um, we Paskin, just like his Rebbe, that the you know Rebbe was his Rebbe Rebbe Kiva was Stamasa was 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 everything was was his anonymous his Rebbe Meir Stama Mishnah to Rebbe Meir. When you have an unattributed Mishnah, we know that that's Rebbe Meir's opinion. And again, the Stama, the unattributed, the an- anonymous Mishnah also kind of uh, sur- reinforces this theme of anonymity. In Perke Avos, Rebbe Meir teaches us Altistakel the Kankan. Ella the Mashiyeshbo, which has an immediate simple pshad, and of course, uh, like all, all of these statements, layers of depth, but don't look at the outside, rather, at, look at what's inside, and of course, one probes that and understands that um, that's on a certain level what Torah trains us to do to not make snap judgments, judgments not to be superficial. <coughs> he teaches us in the Tesef and Kiddushin. This is, I'm giving you some world famous teachings. Maybe you know that they, you can associate with them with, with the God who taught them. This is Rabbi Meir. A person should always see himself as if he is exactly poised, halfway chayev, halfway obligated, and halfway innocent. And that the next action in his life is going to tilt the scales of his life, and then he continues, Asei mitzvah achas, if you do one mitzvah, hichriya atzmo, he now <laughs> determines his fate positively, he's tilted the scales, and so he's going to be redeemed, um, and not only that, the Tosefta continues, Vesa'olam kulo l'kafskus, not only that, you got a picture that the entire world is perfectly balanced, and your next action is going to tilt it to the side of skus, of leniency. And of course, the opposite, the corollary is also true that a person who sins, uh, he has to imagine that that one sin could, could tilt the whole thing and make everything crumble. Uh, Rambam brings this down the halacha in Hilchus Tshuva, that that's the way we live our lives, that every action is of 
meta significance with uh, with far-reaching consequences. Um, by profession, Rabbi Meir was what's called a lavlar. Uh, he was uh, a lavlar, kind of a, a fancy term for a sofer. A sofer, remember, a sofer, like all of Ezra and all of the Anshe Knesset Gedola were sofrim. They, among other things, literally counted the letters. Every letter was precious in the Torah. And Rabbi Meir was one of the great sofrim of all times. He's actually referred to as a um, chacham sofer, a wise man who was a sofer. <laughs> He learned, <clears throat> when he was learning his trade, one of his rabbis, Rabbi Ishmael, taught him to be careful in his work. Rabbi Ishmael said, your work is meleches shemaim. It's, it's heavenly work. And we realize why. You, you're, you're writing down, you're transcribing the letters of the Holy Torah. There's kedusha. They're, they're, literally, you're, you might misconvey a pasuk and thereby misconvey halacha. And of course, the, as we keep talking about the multiple levels, the pshat, the remez, the drash, the sod, um, one could kabbalistically destroy the world in the, in, by, by, by mistaking, and indeed that's what the Gemara and Sota says that if you make a mistake, you could destroy the world. But the mayor, for his part, was one of the, you wanted him to write your mezuzahs and your your, your tefillin. Um, he was makpid in every possible area, careful with with everything. He was careful. For example, the Gemara tells us that a fly shouldn't come in and smudge the crown of the dalid, thereby rendering it a reish. And we're meant to say, like, even down to the last detail, the last, the last uh, area, and there are sofrim who are like this. Anybody ever learn Hilchos Safras or witness uh, an expert sofer at his, at his trade? It's inspiring to watch. They are so careful. And the, um, there are the, the halakos surrounding safrus are many and, um, and, and very, very precise. And that was Rabbi Meir. He was, um, he was, again, the most exalted sofer in town, and yet, being a big tzaddik as he was, he didn't make that much money from it. The, the um, Medrash in Koelis Rabbit tells us he earned but a mere three slime a week, which was not very much, and even with those three coins, he would take one with which he would support himself, one with, with uh, consume, in other words, he would eat from that, and presumably he, when he would eat, he would share with his wife, um, one with which he dressed, and his family, of course, um, and one he used to support other chachamim. That was how he made a living. And it's intimidating, and he has a lot to tell us about how we're supposed to approach our careers. Students asked him what he would, if he lived his life this way, what will he have left to leave his children? And he responded, not a problem. He said, if they're tzaddikim... I've never seen a righteous man who's been abandoned by Kaddish Baruch Hu and their, their seed has to go about pursuing, uh, looking for bread. We were just talking about this pasuk at my Shabbos table, uh, this last Shabbos. Um, they'll be taken care of. Kaddish Baruch Hu will, 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 will take care of them. And then conversely, just finishing the thought, and you'll, you'll, you'll chime in. Uh, conversely, he said, um, if they're not tzaddikim, well then, why do I need to be the one who support Oive Hamakom, the enemies of the of, of Hashem? Right, let them go fend for themselves. Well, they were just normal Jews. Right. He didn't seem to allow for that possibility. Right. They're either going to be this way or that way. Jake, what were you going to say? Um, the Rabbi should say that. Who doesn't say this? <laughs> yes. Oh, we were talking about it this last. You were at the table, right? Was it was it by lunch? This last Shabbos. Didn't we just talk? Yeah, he talked about it that. Zach was there. Zach raised it. You're right. Zach, Zach was asking exactly when this busted. Oh, right. It was the night before. It was, it was, it was, it was Leil Shabbos. Right, right, right. That's right. It, was, it wasn't by lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the Reverend Mayor, though, I mean, we'll, we'll get there, but he really didn't have this problem, though, right? Who? Reverend Mayor, he's at the very end uh, with his children, right? Right. We'll see. I've got a story to tell about his children. Right, right, right. How that answer? How can giving the children Say it again? I, this is much more interesting. You know what? What he's saying is a kolbidei shemaim. Everything's in Hashem's hands. Our job is to work on our, our on, on yira shemaim, which is basic morality. That, that's that's effectively what he's saying. Um, he teaches. He has he has what to t- tell us about parnasa in general in the famous the famous mishnah dealing with parnasa in the last chapter of kedushin. Have you learned it? It's one of those, there are certain things that are must-reads. I mean, a must, one must-read is all of Shas. But let's say you don't get to all of Shas, at least not tomorrow. So um, you definitely must learn this Mishnah near the end of Kiddushin. And it, it really teaches the, uh, 
powerhouse, a uh, number of teachings about parnasa, career, how you, what, what our attitudes should be towards these things. Um, Rabbi Meir teaches that one, one should teach his son a parnasa that he calls nikia vikala. It should be clean and easy. And the Mepharshim try to understand what he's talking about, clean so that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't linger with him, it doesn't have to be distracted by it all the time. Kala, so similarly, should be easy enough that when he leaves work, he can leave the work behind and focus on Torah, on his family, and whatever other greater priorities he has in life. Um, one is aware, especially in the, in the workaholic times in which we live, that how people take their work with them back home and never really leave the office. Sometimes they are, they, they're obsessed. And so Rebbe Mayor was a fan of, you know, of a, choosing wisely what kind of pranasa you would teach your son. Um, interestingly, there's a separate person in that same Mishnah taught in the name of Rebbe Nahurai, which then puts the Gemara in a ruvin, kind of makes us wonder about that, since the Gemara there identifies Rebbe Nahurai as Rebbe Mayor too. So is he the same person? Is it a different person? Uh, unclear. But it's taught as a separate view, and Rabbi Narai actually seems to teach otherwise. He says, I'm not going to teach my son any profession. He said, only Torah. Because Torah sustains a person during his youth, and it keeps a person wise during his maturity. <laughs> does that's a medrash. That's excuse me. That's that's a brice that's also earlier on in the same gemara in Kedushin, in the first chapter. So, so Nahara, Rabbi Naharai apparently that? argues with that, and indeed one finds today in the post scheme an argument about what one needs to do to make a parnasa. There seems to be a view. Uh, there seems to be a view in the post scheme. The um, some of the Bali Musser hold by it. It seems that the Shevet Alevi brings this one down. It seemed that Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld got all of Yerushalayim about a hundred years ago. Um, nobody ever saw him taking any <laughs> measures. We just mentioned this recently in one of the classes I gave. Oh, I, I think in marriage we talked about this. He never seemed to take any steps towards making a parnas, what we call hishtadlus. He doesn't do any hishtadlus. And he's very poor, but he also survived. Um, and there apparently seemed to be this category of existence, people who do not do anything towards Parnassah. Um, the other view, Rav Moshe Feinstein writes about this view, it's his position that, no, everybody, even the loftiest of Talmud Chachamim, has to do some hishtadlus, even something token to make uh, Parnassah, even though in the end, all Parnassah comes from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and in the end, nobody disputes Rabbi Naharai's bottom line that Torah is only Torah, will sustain a person in youth and in old age, um, and, and, and ultimately fill your neshama, but um, how much one needs to make a parnasa then remains a little bit uh, am ambiguous. One approach is that for somebody who is, for somebody who has immense bitachon, like the Hasidim Rishonim who used to come to shul an hour before davening, their davening would last an hour and they would stay in shul after davening to wind down as it were another hour, and then that was not even counting the hours that they also sat learning Torah, and then the Gemara in Brachos asks, hey, how did those Hasidim Rishonim make a Parnasa? To which it answers, if you were one of the Hasidim Rishonim, you didn't have to worry so much about Parnasa. Kaddish Baruch took care of you. So apparently the people who are on a high level of Bitachon, of trusting in the Kaddish Baruch Hu, their Hishtadlus is more of a token. They, do that, they get away with doing a bare minimum, and the Kaddish Baruch Hu really helps them. And then it's a sliding scale. The less Bitachon a person has, Memela, he has to do more Hishtadlus. Because he himself doesn't have the same faith that a Kaddish Baruch Hu takes care of him in varying degrees, so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that indeed he has to work really hard just to be able to make ends meet. Barak? But, but at least this time, it seems like the, the idea of, of Rabbi Naharia. Naharai, yeah. Naharai, mm -hmm. seems to contradict the, the Mishnah and Avos. It does. But since they're all Tanaim, you can, he's, he's entitled to his he's opinion. To right? We call him a Barhachi and Elu Ve'elu Divar Elohim Chaim. They're allowed to certainly contradict one another. And Amora couldn't contradict a Tana, although that in itself is a subject of discussion. Um, Rabbi Naharai, again, if it's Rabbi Meir, uh, teaches us also in Birke Avos that a person should always be Gola to Makom Taira. Wherever you go, we saw, we saw it with bitter irony. The fate of Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, who went off to—he uh, went off by himself, not followed by his students, and lost all of his Torah. Hachodesh Hazelachem became Acheresh Hayalibam. If you remember that whole that whole discussion that we had here, um, and Rabbi Naharai teaches that no, a person has to go to a place of Torah. Don't assume it will follow you. Teaching a variation on perhaps you've heard of it, the um, 
Rambam in Hilchos Deos, teaching about how you have to go and be around Talmidei Chachamim and Tzadikim. But this is uh, no, I could be quoting. I could be quoting Rabbi Noharai, uh, or or many, really uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of other uh, Mamri Chazal that also illustrate this point that you can't assume the Torah will follow you. Ironically, in Rabbi Meir's own life, there was an instance in Shasa Shmad, but obviously he couldn't plan for such things. It was emergency kind of a, a time where he was stuck because of the snowstorm. No, actually, that no, was different. He was stuck, uh, and he was forced to go off to Asia, it says, Asia, uh, when he had to do an Ibur Hashanah. They needed to uh, uh, add a month to the year, and he was there over Purim, and they didn't have a Megillah. So if you're Rebbe Mayer, and you're stuck in a place without a Megillah, so Rebbe Mayer, of course, did the logical thing under the circumstances, he wrote one, for memory. Because he was a sofer and a Talmud Chacham, and he could do that. <laughs> and that's a discussion in the Gemara in Megillah. How could he do that? Um, because you're not allowed to write, a sofer is not, one of the rules of Safras is you're not allowed to write for memory. You must copy from an ex- existing text. And the Gemara, there seems to be Metarets. Rebbe Meir was different. If you're Rebbe Meir, you could do this too. But even then, they said, because it was Bidiyevit and he had no other recourse, so that was better than nothing. But a, but a sofer is not allowed to write from memory. Um, in my mind, I associate this episode, Rebbe Meir, you know, just writes his own Megillah, which we should also be so blessed to have such good memory. Um, one, remem- one thinks in the future of the Vilnagon, who went around proofread, and he was not alone, although the Vilnagon was most impressive. Uh, of many of the Gedolim, and we had, we had other figures who were um, autodidacts, self-taught, and every, they, they, consume, they would consume books. The Steik Chemed was like that, too. He apparently had virtual memory, and he, did, he didn't forget anything he ever saw. In the case of the Vilnagon, he once was a guest in, in, a, in, a, in a house of a very generous Balabais, and as a going-away gift to show his gratitude, other people buy a bottle of wine. What did the, what did the Vilnagon do? He, he consumed the man's library. He read every book in it, and he noticed one of the books in the library was a Rashba, one of the great Rishonim, the Rashba, and the Rashba was missing the last several, <coughs> this particular edition was missing the last several pages of the Rashba, and I don't know, Chveis on, 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 on Baba Basra, let's say, and so as a, going, as, as a gift, the Gra wrote in from memory the end of the Rashba's commentary on Baba Basra for the man, so he'd have it in his library. I don't know if you realize how impressive that is. But anyway, uh, when we have our Gedolim, they could, they could do things like this. Or, or, or just even more basically, it wasn't just Gedolim. Anybody would have a Gemara here? Or a Gemara on your, on your desk? You ever notice in the Gemara, before there was the Torah, or before Rav Yeshua Boaz, before Rav Yeshua Boaz gave us these great reference guides in the sides and the margins and the source of Shas and everything, right? Before there was a Torah, or there was all the references, you could go look up the Pasuk, do you ever notice Chazal don't refer to what Pasuk they're talking about? They just quote randomly Psukim left and right because they took it as a Dabur Pasuk, as a given that all Jews certainly know the Tanakh by heart. I mean, come on, you don't? Or they didn't want to insult our intelligence by giving too many references. So that was, uh, that was, it was, it was a different generation, different, uh, different, uh, Rabbi Meir wrote Megillah from heart, by heart. <coughs> um, Rabbi Meir himself had many students. One of his students was a figure by the name of Sumchus, Sumchus was famous in his own right. He teaches in the ba- major principles of Dine Mamonos. One of them, for example, is that money in doubt should be shared. So his own, it, it, not everybody agrees with it, but that's, that's Sumchus's idea. And anybody, people who are learning yeshivas know Sumchus and know this idea. It's a very, very famous idea. Um, of course, one of his students is Rebbe Yudanasi himself, who we call Rebbe. Um, and Rebbe once said about Rebbe Meir, he said the following. Students asked him, why he was, why Rebbe had achieved such a sharp mind, why he was what's called so mechudad in his learning, so incisive, so perceptive, and able to really just cut to the chase. And Rebbe Yehuda Nossi explained his, his chidud as follows. He says, the only reason I am is because once <laughs> I saw Rebbe Meir me'acharav. I once saw the back of Rebbe Meir and that impacted my mind and made me mechudad in my learning. And then he continued, he said, you know, I would have been, become even greater in Torah had I'd seen Mipanov, if I'd seen him, what he looked like from the front. Marnie Ruven teaches. Now what does that mean? He never once looked at his Rebbe? 
he only once saw him from his backward side, right? What, what does that mean? Other than there's something that was such, such grandeur about Rebbe Meir that all it took was for Rebbe, Rebbe to see the backside and somehow that had an indelible impact on him for the rest of his life. Uh, pay attention to this, this statement that we're going we're to hear similar ones said. So that was Rebbe's take on Rebbe Meir. Um, Rebbe Meir was married to one of the famous women of the town. Bury is her name. We've met her already. She was uh, the daughter of Rabbi Chanania uh, ben Tradium, one of the Asara Haruge Malchus, whose parents were both killed cruelly, and her sister was taken to the brothel, to a house of harlots. And Bruria <laughs> is famous for many reasons. Among them, she was exceedingly wise, one of the great wise people of all times. Her opinions are actually cited among the Tanaim, and she was not a feminist. She just was wise, and so she was somebody that they paid attention to. The, uh, yeah, she was purely the Shem Shemaim in one exchange, and you have to, Agarita is so rich, and there's so much, so it's so packed with ironies. See if you can appreciate just a couple lines, but just a few words of Agarita that went as follows. It's morning, Ruben. Rabbi Yossi once was walking on the road, and he sees her, and he asks, Be'eze? Derech nelech lelod, In which way shall we go to Lud? What a directions? Not a big deal. Okay, common scene. Her response, Buri, you don't mess around. Buri is not somebody you want to get on your bad side. So she, she responds very sharply. She too is very sharp, and she says, "Glili shote, you foolish Galilean." He was a Biosia Glili, so she called him Glili shote. Uh, she says, don't you know that the Mishnah in Perkei Avos teaches, Al ima'isha. You're not supposed to talk too much with girls. And he said, well, what should I have said? You know, all he said was, She says, You should have said, You added two extraneous words. I told you this story? Okay, great, great story. Um, <coughs> She was sharp. A student was learning, but not out loud, and she rebuked him. You're supposed to learn, when you're learning Torah, you should learn out loud, insofar as that's feasible. She would go at it with the heretics for their evil ways. She rebuked them. She even once, and another famous Agarita, in the, um, the top of Yudah Malalif in Brachos, in the Gemara in Brachos, um, I don't know what she was doing over listening, overhearing Rabbi Meir davening, but, it, but apparently there were these listim, there were these bandits in town who gave Rabbi Meir no end of flack. They gave him a hard time. And Rabbi Meir davened that they should die. His enemies should die, should, 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 meet, should meet their uh, just rewards. And Buria overheard him. And she rebuked her husband and she said, I didn't think that the Pasuk said like that. She said, I thought the Pasuk says, we say this on Rosh Chodesh, he said, Yitamu, we, we dab in the Gadosh Baruch Hu, Yitamu chataim mina aretz, urashayim odinam. It says, let the sins vanish from the world, uh, uh, cease from being in the world, urashayim odinam, and then, then there'll be no more sinners, there'll be no more wicked people. She said, it says, it doesn't say, let the sinners vanish, it says, let the sins vanish. She told her husband, Davin, that these bad guys should make tshuva, and then indeed there'll be no more sins left in the world. So he recognized the, great, the greatness of his wife, and he listened to her, and he davened that they should stop sinning, they should make tshuva, and they did. And they did, and actually uh, the, story end, the story ends very positively, it doesn't always end positively. But Urushayim uh, Odinam. Eishis Chayil Miyimtza. So the Medrash in Mishle, in the, in, the, in, the, in the 31st chapter of Mishle, who will find the valorous woman? Actually, we can darshan um, great women of Jewish history. The Medrash connects each pasuk with a different figure of history. So in this Medrash, it connects it with Bruria and tells the following story. Bruria and Rabbi Meir have two sons. And in this, in this they also have a daughter who'd marry, who married a Talmud Chacham, but that's, this is not her story. Um, they have two sons. And one Shabbos, Rabbi Meir was waiting for his sons. They learned together in the base medrash. And it was Shabbos afternoon, and the sons never came. And apparently they had tarried. They would remained eating and drinking. 
and uh, relative to their stature, they should have known better. They were eating and drinking way too much. They were, they were indulging themselves. And uh, the Medrash tells us they died. And Bruria finds them, and she covers their body with a, sh- with a sheet, and she does not tell her husband. Why doesn't she tell her husband? We're on the Shabbos. Yep. Shabbos only. <coughs> an obligation to exult on Shabbos. You're not allowed to read Holocaust stories. You're not allowed to be sad on Shabbos. Our next-door neighbor, great great woman, uh, young, youngish woman, she was 48 when she suddenly died one day on an Arab Shabbos. Um, she had one of those, she uh, had a cast on her, her leg and there was a blood clot that detached from the wound and suddenly got into her bloodstream. And within just a matter of minutes, uh, she died. And, and the family was a great, great family. The, the youngest kid was, was good, is good friends with my son, Alicia. And um, he was at the time, must have been nine or 10 years old. And then everything all the way up, and they married kids too, eight, eight kids, four grandkids at the time. And um, so she died, and that Shabbos, um, they sang, and they hadn't even had the funeral. The Leviah was mostly Shabbos. They hadn't even buried her yet. Heber Kedisha had taken the body. Um, and the Shabbos day, they, they didn't cry, because that's the halacha, you're not supposed to cry. That's what supposed to do. So Buria didn't inform Rabbi Meir. And um, he asked about them where are they? Where are my sons? And uh, she said, I'm sure they'll come along anytime. They'll be fine. They'll be here. She pushed him off. She didn't want to destroy his, 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 his simcha, his, his onik Shabbos. So now it's Motsi Shabbos. And he says, where are my sons? And she said, I'm sure they'll be here any, t- any minute now. Make havdalah, make malava malka. They're eating malava malka. I'm sure it's bagels and cheesecake. And they're eating malava malka. And um, finally, after malava malka, she says, she says, Rebbe, I have a, sh- a she'ela to ask. She says to her husband, Rebbe, I have a she'ela. And he says, Ask my daughter. She said, If a, a depositor deposited something by me, is the halacha that I have to return the pikadon, the deposit to him? <laughs> and Rabbi Meir said, Of course. What is the shayla? Of course. You're a shomer. You're the halacha of the shomer. And of course, once you have, you've done your job of being a shomer, shomer chinam, shomer sachar, whatever kind of shomer you are, but you have to return the pikadon in the end. He said, Yes. So she answers, Rebbe, chutz midascha, lo ha'isi no so. She said, you know, okay, but had you not told me this, I'm not sure I'd be able to give it, give this pikadon back. With this, she takes her husband by the hand and she leads him upstairs. And she goes into the room and she removes the sheet. And he screams. And he says, he says, Banai, 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 Rabbi, Rabbi, my sons, my Rebbe's. He says, my sons, B'derech Eretz, you're my, my children in Derech Eretz, in teachings of the world, in teaching good midos. My, my teachers, Shahaya Me'irim Panad B'Sorasam, who enlightened my eyes in their great wisdom in their Torah. And he was, he was bereft. And so she said, but Rebbe, I thought you told me that if we have a Pikadon, if we're given a safekeeping, that we have to give it back. And she quotes the pasuk from Eov. She says, "Hashem nasan, v'Hashem lakach, yehi shem Hashem mevarach." Hashem gives, Hashem takes, and Hashem's name is blessed. You have to know how to tell people tragic news. She had, the, she had the, the the gift to be able to, to say it quite right, put it in perspective. It, from this from this medrash, we learn many many things. Not the least of which is what a parent's attitude should be towards children. Children are not a possession, as sometimes in the Western world, parents get a misconception that they own their kids and should micromanage their lives. Um, but parents, just like everybody else, have obligations <coughs> to their kids, just like their kids have many obligations to the parents. Um, but the children should be related to as a pikadon, as a safekeeping from Hashem. Hashem nasan, Hashem lakach. Hashem gives you these on condition that you do good things and uh, take advantage, use, use, rise to the task. Why was he called Rabbi Mir Balanes? So the Gemara in Abodazari answers the question. Bruria finally says, she says to her husband one day, li, I'm, I'm giving you a lot of the Hebrew because it's just so rich and the English does such a disservice to it. So let's get the Hebrew down. It, it goes into the Neshama anyway. You'll, you'll remember in Olam Haba the Hebrew too. zonos. It's disgraceful for me that my sister still sits in a, in, a, in, a, in a prostitute's house. You remember what happened to her sister. 
And she said, we have to do something with them. <coughs> They're effectively powerless under the Roman shiltone, under the Roman dominion. What can a Jew do? She was there under the decree of the Caesar. <coughs> so he says, he agrees with her. He says, and he's, he's going to take matters into his hands. He says, if nothing, if no Easter has been done with her, it would be a miracle, but maybe I'll have Siata Dishmaya. And of course, he's assuming in such a place that such a woman keeping herself pure would be virtually impossible. It would be a miracle if she kept herself pure. He goes, he disguises himself. He goes to the place where she is located, goes to the brothel. He pretends he's going to rent her services. And when he goes into her, she says, I can't. She says, I'm unable. First, she makes all kinds of excuses. Derech noshim, she says, like Rachel made who can't get up before her father Lavan. She says, I'm in the women's way. And he says, that's okay. I don't mind that. And she says, oh, well, she says, there are so many more beautiful women here. You do so much better than me. And when he realizes she's very strong and very aggressive, and he realizes no, none of his entreaties, none of, none of his begging is going to work, that she will not be with him, and he realizes she's maintained herself. And he reveals his identity, and she says, yeah, Baruch Hashem, I have never, I've never, I've never been impurified here. And um, he says, I will try to get you out of here. And he goes to the Shomer, the man who's in charge, I guess whoever's in charge of house of prostitutes, of a brothel, and he, he tries to bribe him, and the Shomer explains to Rabbi Meir that it doesn't work that way in the Roman Empire. Remember, the Roman Empire is an extension of Esau. They are, if nothing, they are meticulous. They keep records, they keep tabs. Where is the, they, they know that in this brothel there are precisely 53 prostitutes. And if 53 prostitutes cannot be accounted for, well, the owner, the Shomer of the brothel is going to have to pay with his life. So everything is, he said, great, I'll, take, I'll make this money, but how will I be able to spend it? They're going to have my neck. He explains to Rebbe Mayer. Um, so Rebbe Mayer gives him a trick, which you can learn yourself, which is a pretty useful trick. He says, say the following, Eloka Demer Aneni. Let the God of Rebbe Mayer answer me. And then he demonstrates. He says, see those killer dogs over there? And he demonstrates, and they do the whole, whole, the whole setup and demonstration, but effectively, just as the killer dogs are about to lunge for the kill, he says, Eloka, Demer, Aneni, and the dogs retreat to their corner. And the Shomer says, well, that's a good trick. I'll use that. And he takes the bribery and lets Rabbi Mir uh, out, and the woman goes free, his sister-in-law goes free. Later, we find, indeed, the Caesar does take an account, finds there's one missing prostitute, has the show, holds the Shomer accountable, is about to crucify him. Crucifixion was still a uh, <coughs> du jour kind of a, a, a death sentence, on, on a very cruel one on, uh, on, on Roman uh, victims. And as they're about to, um, to, to hoist him up, he recites, Eloka de Mer Aneni, the rope tears, and they try it again and nothing works. And they realize that some miracle is happening. And so his sentence is waived. He reveals the story finally. And they realize Rabbi Meir is at large. And they go after Rabbi Meir and they put a wanted picture of, of Rabbi Meir up everywhere, including uh, at the entrance to Rome, at the gate of Rome. And Rabbi Meir is in Rome uh, where he went to go fetch his sister-in-law. So he hides in a brothel. And he's in the brothel. And um, another miracle happens. He is in the brothel, and as the Romans come charging into his room, they find him in a state of immodesty with a prostitute. Only it's not a prostitute. It's Eliyahu Anavi, disguised as one. What you? This is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's the story. Anyway, don't take it like with any agarata. There are many layers of meaning. Right. Um, in any case, he's not really. Nothing bad is happening there, and um, and he's saved. He's saved from the Roman decree, and he is then afterwards. He's able to get away. Arak la Asia and he makes out towards Asia. It may be that that's exactly the time that he went to go write his Megillah, his save from Megillah. Um, it may also be because of the Gemara you referred to yesterday. You know all these stories, right? So this, the Gemara in Avodah says something about Arak Rabbi Meir La Asia. <laughs> he takes off to Asia. The Gemara just says because of the Maisa de Bruria. 
but it leaves it at that. Does anybody else other than Barak know the story? You know what I'm talking about? The Mice of the Berea? Okay, one last little story, not so little. Rashi brings the story, Rashi doesn't cite his sources, which is a little un, 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 um, atypical, and this is not a story we find in any of our extant Midrashim. The story that Rashi tells, Rashi, of course, is a reliable source, it's just a question, where, where is this from, is a shocker of a shocker. It says that one day, brilliant Beria was learning the Chazal of Noshim Das and Kalalayu, the women are light in their minds, and of course, she being more brilliant than most of the men of, her, of all time, uh, didn't understand this expression. And she was questioning it. And Rabbi Meir decided that he would teach her a lesson. See, the idea of Noshin Das and Kala is, as Rabbi Lasky famously teaches, women, he's, he paraphrases it, women fall for the dumbest lines. But it's not just cute and it's not a joke. What it means is that women are so um, focused on a relationship that otherwise intelligent women sometimes will hear things, will be easily seduced by ideas um, because she desires a relationship. It's one of the reasons why we're more machmir for women in yichud situations than we are for men. I mentioned this in the marriage chabura. Anybody who was there, um, so Bruria in her, in her in, in, somebody somebody of sound intelligence questions this, and Rebbe decides he's going to teach her what that means. That even she should realize the, the the wisdom of Chazal, and so he sets up one of his students to seduce her, and he succeeds. And when she realizes, she kills herself, and then Rebbe Meir takes off for Asia. And it's not what it sounds like. But that's the story that's told, and I'm here giving all the messy details of history, so that's the story that's told. It could most likely mean that she doesn't literally kill herself, that it was a figure of speech, that God is not meant to be taken on the literal level. Um, what clearly we can deduce from the, from the, from the Egaritha is that um, no, no person, no woman, no man is above and beyond any situation. We learned that idea recently here that uh, nobody, nobody is, um, is, is past the, uh, answering to halacha. Remember Alicia Benabuya, and, and, and he thought he was, that was Rabbi Tzadok Akohen makes this point that, uh, you know, he thought he was above and beyond, but nobody's above and beyond, and that was a lesson that Beria must, must learn. There was humiliation even for the Gedolim, like Rabbi Meir and Beria. In any case, it's not what it sounds like, but that's the story that's told in Rashi. Go ahead. I heard an uh, interesting version of the same story. Yeah, what is, what is the variation, though? Yeah, so the big variation actually has to do with what we talked about yesterday, uh, Shimon ben Nachai. Yeah, yes. Rabbi Shimon, yeah. Because he was uh, in the cave, and they said that he was in the cave because he was worried, and he couldn't tell anybody, because he was worried that the woman, that the, his wife, <coughs> would be seduced. And then, uh, if no, that's the Gemara and Shabbos says that that he uses. That's right. one of the places where Noshin Das and Kala appears. Right. He was on the cave. He was in the base medrash. Right. He was base medrash. He was concerned that maybe she would reveal his whereabouts. And right. And then, so I heard that's what she was studying that section of Bruria. And she, and she said, oh, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have... Do you have a source? That's Parshanut. I'm not sure that that's... I, I, I don't have a source, but that's... that's what I mean, it's fanciful drush, but I, I don't know. I would be skeptical. <laughs> One of the um, it, it's become a tradition among Jews when a Jew finds himself in crisis or alternately when he's when he's lost something um, when he wants to find a last object he gives tzedakah for Talmud Chachamim in Eretz Israel and says Eloka Demer Aneni um, I can't I'm I'm a hopeless rationalist myself but. Um, I know that um, it was about three days we were looking for Alicia's glasses. And then I just thought, you know, Alicia, try this. And within two minutes, he found them. The, the same thing happened in this yeshiva. There was okay. a kid who lost his humor. <laughs> Instantly, he... He, he said, look at the, the, the Maranini. Almost instantly. I, I've heard many such stories. So you, did, you, you figure it out for yourself. I'm not here to prove such things. Uh, what we do know is that... Rebbe, go ahead, go ahead Jay. To, to be able to hide from the Romans. In the last one of my time, that people make... Pikuach Nefesh. overrides Mari Sain. Okay. Rabbi Meir Balanes, his camera is identified um, by the Arizal uh, on south of Tiveria, above, above the, the, the Kinneret. Um, the Rabbi Meir Balanes Tzedakah Society would be established in 1860 by the Rav, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, Rav Shmuel Salant, uh, as, as um, 
some of these figures in history have to realize we generally, our generation is relatively assimilated and ignorant, but we don't know these stories. But you have to imagine all of our great, great, great grandparents, all of them, I mean, somewhere back there, everybody was from, and everybody grew up on these stories of Rabbi Meir, of Buri, of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. They walked with them, they were inspiring to them on a level, it was internalized, these stories, and they, 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 they knew them almost personally. So for Rabbi Shmuel Salan to have a Tzedakah society called Rabbi Meir Balanes, where as a child you grew up with Rabbi Meir Balanes, you felt like he was a familiar figure and that you would, have a, you would give Tzedakah to his society was immensely um, meaningful to people. Uh, we don't have that as much. We're not as connected as much through our ignorance, but of course that's what we're trying to do here is try to correct that. The, um, Rabbi Meir, we know, died in Bavel, um, but he orders them famously to bury, them, bury him back in Eretz Yisrael. The Yushalmi tells us that they brought his body back, and at the time, Tiberia was a major center of uh, Jewish life, and that's where he was buried. Um, he was, his contemporary, together with Rabbi Shimon, we've mentioned before, but a few words about Rabbi Yehuda Barilai. Rabbi Yehuda Barilai, who is, as we said, he's the Stam Rabbi Yehuda of the Mishnah. He's everywhere, in fact. Um, after Rabbi Meir dies, he, he emerges as the undisputed Gadolador, not just because the Romans loved him, not just because he was the Rosh Medavim Bochumakum, as we said yesterday, but he really was the Gadolador. Um, he, we mentioned before, that he, his name is mentioned more than any other in Mishnah. Um, the halacha in any argument between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir, and there are many, um, the halacha goes with Rabbi Yehuda. And the Tosfos explained he was the greater Talmud Chacham of the two, which is saying quite a lot. Um, in this, in one of the psukim about um, in, about Eishes in a different passage it says, "Isha Yiras Hashem, he sees Salal, a woman who fears Hashem, she'll be exalted among others." Um, in this case, it doesn't just refer to one woman; it refers to this generation of Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli, and it, 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 it the, the Medrash explains why were they so exalted? What was their Yiras Shemaim? They were people of utter destitution; they had nothing. And they were fine. They managed to the point that six Talmudim, six students, shared between them one garment. That's how much money they had. What? And they, they all under a blanket somehow. They all were able to share one garment and thereby learn because you can't learn in a state of nakedness. So they learned. That's the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells this. Um, similarly, the Gemara Nidarim tells us that he and his wife shared one cloak. And one imagines that while the other one was out doing their business, the Gemara indicates that the other one stayed in bed. So they were never naked, but they shared one garment between the two of them. She went to market with it. He went to shul with it. And they somehow you know, had a rotation system with their, with their garments. Are you done with it? I'll, I'll wear it. Apparently there wasn't a problem with Begadish, Begadisha. And um, even so, you'd think, you know, by our generation, we're spoiled rotten, right? So I only have five pairs of shoes. Um, right when he would bench Malbish Arumim in the morning, it's one of our Birkas Shahar, he would bench that Hashem closed the naked. It was one of his favorite brachas. He really appreciated it. He did it with utter joy. Sometimes you have nothing, and then whatever you do have, you appreciate much more. We're, we're a generation of complete plenty of conspicuous consumption. We have way too much, way too much, and we tend as a generation not to appreciate, appreciate much, much of anything. So we're, we're supposed to take Musar from the generation of Rebihuda Bar Eli. Yeah. Wait, how do we know that? that, that, that last part, that oh, uh, that's the um, Gemara. Gemara Nadarim says that. Uh -huh. He said, Malbisha Arumi with, with excessive, with, with incredible amount of enthusiasm. Um, and it's this me that I promised you this yesterday. Remember I said that Rabbi Victor Miller gave a grape shot on the three men's punishment that was not really a punishment. <laughs> Rabbi Yehuda praised the Romans. Rabbi Yossi, Aglili, Rabbi Yossi Ben Chalakta was silent. And um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai criticized them. So Rabbi Shimon was punished with a death sentence that wasn't his death sentence. It was his life sentence because he went to the cave and he learned to became Rabbi Shimon and had the, had the Zohar as a result of that became his immense spiritual self. Rabbi Yossi wasn't really punished because he was exiled to, to Tzipori where he could sit quietly outside of the Roman purview and be able to sit and write Seder Olam and all of his great Torah. Rabbi Yehuda, we asked the Kashi, said, how could Rabbi Yehuda praise on the surface, it sounds like he's giving Hanufah flattery to the Romans, the wicked Romans. He sees the good. So Rav Miller says, yeah, he couldn't help it. 
It was part of his essence. Who is Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli? He was somebody with such immense hakara satov, of gratitude to everything that his benevolent attitude, the only, the only that, that's what shone through. And when he thought of the Romans, he thought, wow, those are great bridges. I just love those, uh, those markets that they built for us. He had that kind of positive outlook that it was just great. And it's not that he didn't acknowledge the correctness of Rabbi Shimon's view, but he was somebody who was a Malamed Schools kind of a personality, that he couldn't help but to see the positive. We should be led, we should be so good. Um, <clears throat> he was, it's Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli who teaches that on Moshe's staff was inscribed the uh, abbreviation Datsach Adash Ba'achav, which of course is the mnemonic that helps us remember the plagues. The Makos Mitzrayim, we have this in the Haggadah we say it every year. That's from Rabbi Yehuda. You'll, you'll notice it this, this coming Pesach that that's indeed his teaching. Avos um, Rabbi Nassim, we, we learn about him that when a, uh, one, one time a poor Kala passed him with very little to celebrate at her wedding, um, and she was not very happy. And so they, he was learning with his students, and he decided that the mitzvah was a mitzvah overus that was out, outranked his learning Torah. So they stopped their learning at his at his direction, and they started they started they proceeded to dance and make a circle and be misameach the, the kala. Um, in the Yushalmi, we learned that he drank four cups of wine on Pesach, but he was he was of such delicate constitution that it affected him. He was sick until he had a headache until Atzeris, all the way until for 50 days until Chag Masam Torah. But he still did it every year. That was his practice because he fulfilled the mitzvahs as they were meant to be filled. Um, it's Rabbi Yehuda who teaches us that in the future days, whatever this means precisely, Hashem will shecht the Yetzahara in front of the Tzadikim and in front of the Rishayim. Do you know the Gemara? The end of the Sukkah? What does it mean? He's going to shecht the Yetzahara. Because the end of days are not going to be like uh, the, the days that we have exactly. <laughs> right. Everybody's going to cry. So there are different, there are different um, explanations about what the tears... Um, a simple, this is the Marsha says, the Rishayim are going to cry because they're going to perceive the Yitzhahara as a simple molehill and nothing. And they're going to say, that's what dominated our lives? We were so obsessed with this nonsense of the Yitzhahara. If you could take, if you could take, most people can't, a clinical detached view of your various Yitzhaharas, the video games that distract you, the um, the uh, you know the various things that we do with our with our life, and then take it detached, pull yourself away for just a, a fraction of a moment from that thing, and um, you'd see. Well, that's just silly. Why am I so preoccupied with this thing? That makes no sense. And that's how, in the end of days, all the Rishayim are going to see their 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 obsession with the eight Saharas. It's like, why couldn't I overcome that little that little hill? And the tzaddikim are going to cry, and the marsha explains, because they're going to perceive it as a great mountain that they were able to overcome. And they're going to see that they did this immense avodah Hashem in struggling with the Yetzirah and vanquishing it. And now that the Yetzirah is shechted, they have no more opportunities to show Hashem what they're worth. Meaning, we don't appreciate it, but in our lives, dafka because we struggle, because we have misiones, because we have difficult times, that's our chance to show Hashem what we're made of, how good we are. And when that no longer presents itself, an old man, for example, who has a limited Yetzahara, can't ever really make the same tshuva that he could make as a young man. His opportunity, is, his opportunity is somewhat limited. And everybody, as long as they're alive, can make some tshuva. But if the test as a young man is immense, and then you have lesser desires as you age, so then you'll never be able to make tshuva to the same degree. Why do you say that? Okay? They'll never have the chance. You should have said we. Oui. We, oui, I'm in the, Yeah, no, for sure. I agree, I agree with that. Okay. Um, yeah, in order, for the record, <laughs> we've met most of them at this point. In order, who are the most cited Tanaim in the Mishnah? So after Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli, the most commonly cited name that one has in the Mishnah, this is maybe cheating a little bit, but it's Chachamim. We find the name Chachamim, and I know that doesn't count. Fine, okay, whatever. If you had to be precise, that's the name that comes up second. Wait, he comes up more than, I mean, he comes up less than Rabbi Yehuda? Rabbi? Yes, Rabbi Yehuda Barilai is so frequently that, mentioned that he's number one, he even beats Chachamim. Correct, that's more shocking, that's correct. Number three, Rabbi Meir. Meir. 
Wait, is that all of his anonymous stuff too? Or is that just no, no, no. Rebbe Nir, the, 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 if you just tally the number of times his name is mentioned, right? With his anonymous Stama Mishnah and Rebbe Meir, so then the number is immense by Rebbe Meir. Number four is Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai. Yeah, I, 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 one of the reasons I give this list right now is to underscore, even though we're near the later period of Tanaim, these Tanaim that, we, that we're um, learning from now, they have an immense impact in, on Torah, on learning. It's this generation, the Torah multiplies, is, 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 uh, is brought down to, to, to a, uh, a disproportionate degree, certainly compared to the other generations. And number five, their colleague also is Rabbi Yossi, Ben Chalafta. It's, it's Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli, Chachamim, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Yossi. So we're covering, these are, by the, um, for example, what, what else links those four figures, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi, Rabbi Yossi? They were the four on the mountain in between Shvaram and Usha who received smicha from Rabbi Yehuda Ben Bava, Right, one of the Asara Rugi Malchus, they got smicha from him. They were also students of Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva. Um, number six is going back, dipping back a couple generations, Rabbi Eliezer and Hyrcanus. <laughs> number seven is Rabbi Akiva, his students. Eight is Beis Shammai. Nine, Beis Hillel. And ten, Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanani. Rabbi, uh, Beis Shammai is more than Beis Hillel, interestingly, also. Go look it up. No, we talked about this too. There were six times that they're more machmir, you're thinking of. That Beis Hillel is more machmir than Beis Shammai. We also hold by Beis Shammai at other times too. Right, and the six times are listed in... Uh, Beitza. Beitza, I thought it was in... Isn't there one... Uh, <coughs> yes, it elsewhere too. I thought it's listed in that mission of when they do the testimonies, when they open... Eduios, also there's repetition Eduios. Um, We've met him, but, but uh, he's worthy of, of, of comment and focus. Rabbi Lazar ben Rabbi Shimon, the son of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai. Uh, we hear about later on, and there are a few stories that we have to uh, tell about him. Also lived in the time of Roman persecution. Um, he, this is one of my favorite bits of Agatha. I did this with my Gemara share last year. We learned at the top of the citadel in Sfat, and we took out the Gemara, the, uh, Gemara in Baba Metziah and learned this together. Um, there was a Jewish capo equivalent, a guy who was designated by the Roman Empire to catch thieves. And um, Rabbi Elazar approached him and said, how could you do this? Maybe you're capturing, you're leaving um, innocent men behind and you're capturing, you're leaving wicked men behind and you're capturing innocent men. How do you know who to catch? And you know when you give a thief over to the Roman Empire, you're Moser and they're going to kill him. Well, not necessarily. The Roman Empire, necessarily. Sometimes, sometimes. But it was often, usually, a death sentence. So then the Agatha takes an interesting turn, and the Paragona asks him, he said, well, what should I do? I'm under duress. The Romans are forcing me. So he gave him a formula. He said, go to a coffee house and see, at a certain hour in the morning, who's falling asleep over his drink. If, it's, um, if he's a Talmud Chacham, you can assume he stayed up all night. If, he's, uh, if he does certain crafts, you can assume that he was working on his craft at night. But if he's none of the above, he was a thief and he was out all night stealing, and you can send him to the Romans. And apparently, mystically, remember he was in the cave for those 13 years, he knew, and that was the formula. The Romans get word of it, and they appoint him now as the new thief catcher. Rabbi Elazar uh, Rabbi Shimon becomes the thief catcher. This is a legality you don't know, I'm shocked. It's one of my favorites. It's, it? it's Baba Metziah Pei Gimel on the base. And um, once a low-status individual came out and um, he, he, was, he was criticized by Rabbi Yeshua ben Korcha, Rabbi Kiva's son. He said, how are you doing this? How can you, how can you um, catch the thieves? This is Hashem's work. And Rabbi Lazar says, um, I'm just removing kotzim from the kerem, removing thorns from, the, uh, from, the, from Hashem's vineyard. And the, Rabbi Yeshua responds, Rabbi Yeshua ben Korcha says, let the owner of the vineyard remove his own thorns. What are you doing this for? Once this kovis comes over and criticizes Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Lazar, and Rabbi Lazar assumes you must be a Russia, and he sends him to the Romans, 
And then he has doubts and he thinks, oh no, maybe, I, maybe he was uh, really guilty, but it was too late. And they hang the Russia, they hang this Kovitz. And so Rabbi Elazar goes under, under, up under his, the hanging body of the Kovitz and he, he, he cries, he weeps. Maybe he sent an innocent man to his death. And his students rush over and they say, Rebbe, Rebbe, no, it's good. This man actually was, he with his son were Boel a Nara Murasa. They had relations with the betrothed girl on her, you know, you know, on Yom Kippur while eating a pork chop and wearing shotness. No, I added those last few things. But in other words, he was so high of Misi, you can't count the ways, meaning, and, and Rebbe, Rebbe Elazar feels assuaged because now he knows that his sveikos, his, his doubts are really certain. Um, but he's plagued, like any tzaddik wants to make sure he does the right thing, he's plagued with doubts, so they, well, they do the logical thing under the circumstances. They drug him, and they bring him up to the attic. Jake left, I can't believe he's missing the best of Gata. Um, they put him up in the, in the attic, and they, um, he was famously um, obese, although that's also something you can't take quite literally, and they remove buckets and buckets of fat from his belly. I guess that's really liposuction. Um, and they, they put it out in the sun, in the mid, in the hot summer sun, and um, it doesn't putrefy, and thereby prove to him that there's nothing rotten inside of him. <laughs> How fat was he? He and Rabbi Yishmael, Rabbi Yossi, were so fat, the Gemara continues to tell us the story, that you could stand them up in profile, one against the other, and they could fit a team of oxen beneath them, and none of them would touch one another. And all of which is <laughs> worthy of uh, uh, hours and hours of commentary, and I refer you to the Maharal, who, who darshans all of this and, and, and brings out wondrous secrets uh, from this Gemara. Um, we know that later on, the, his wife does not bring his body for burial. There's a whole episode between him and his wife. He used to welcome suffering. And he used to, uh, the afflictions would come, this is later on in the same Gemara, he, the afflictions would come on him in the nighttime, but not in the day, so, so that he wouldn't um, neglect his Torah learning. And um, at how much was his affliction? The Gemara describes that she had to put 60 pans under his bed to absorb um, the, uh, the buckets and buckets of pus and ooze and, and gunk that came out from his body, from his sores, from his pain uh, that he suffered. And his suffering clearly was so that he should suffer in this world so that he'd be completely scoured of sin for the next world. And then his wife found, find out, found out that he was bringing it on himself, and so she, leave, she leaves him. Uh, and then, and then, in any event, later in the Gemara, she comes back, and he eventually dies. And um, she keeps his body upstairs for 18, and some say 22 years. And um, his body doesn't decompose. Because indeed, he had achieved a, a spiritual uh, perfection in this world that seemed to over, overflow into a physical perfection. Um, we only rot, we only putrefy because of sin. If a person never sinned, you'd never have body odor. Your feet wouldn't smell, you'd never have bad breath. Apparently, all of these signs of decay are a reflection of our lowly state ethically. And um, he, his body didn't get decomposed. Eventually, it's brought for burial. Um, in the end, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, um, when she's a widow, he wants to marry her. She's a great woman. He wants to marry her. She was married to this great man. And he sends a... Um, message over to her, and she responds, really one of the great one-liners in all of Shas, she responds to Rabbi Huda Nasi, the great Rabbi, Rabbi Rabbeinu Hagadol in the Gemara, our great Rabbi, she responds, Klish yishtamesh kodesh, yishtamesh cho, a vessel that a holy one has used should be used now by a profane one. Ouch! She says, uh, declining Rabbi's proposition to her. She says, I've been used, you know, I was the wife of Rebbe Lazar. How could I be used by you? You're, you're klichol, she says. Um, the Gemara Zvachim tells us that he was so saturated with the spirit of study, he learned and learned and learned and then learned when he was finished that he couldn't even stop himself in the bathroom, in the, in the outhouse, which is also, but the Gemara says he couldn't stop himself anyway. It was hard for him to stop learning Torah. He was, he was walking Sefer Torah. <coughs> According to Tosfos and the Rush and other poskim, Rebbe Lazar is the same Rebbe Lazar HaKalir, who's the Paitan, who's known, among other reasons, as, as, as the great Paitan, the author of, of these, they're not poems, they're more than poems, these, these, um, these uh, sections that we read, the keynotes that we read on Tisha B'Av. Most of them are written by Rebbe Lazar HaKalir, and many Rishonim identify that as the same Rebbe Lazar who hid in the cave with his father for those 13 years. 
Now, the final figure I'm going to at least introduce today, where we have five more minutes, and I'm not going to finish this, but um, we're going to introduce the figure, we've already met him, of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the son of Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, the Nasi himself, um, who was a towering figure at the end of the period of the Tanoim. And when we talk about him, of course, after him, we're going to talk about the Mishnah and um, the final, final stages of the Tanaitic period, arguably one of the most impactful periods in our history. Um, he began his period as Nasi. His father seemed to pass from the scene sometime around the mid to late second century. Rebbe himself had a long life. He outlived many Caesars. The, um, based on the Rambam's introduction to Pirkei Avos, we understand that Rebbeinu Hagadol, uh, was, there was never so much Taira and Godless in one place, excuse me, the, the Rambam quoted the Margitin. Uh, from Moshe to Rebbe, there was never Taira and Godless in one place embodied. And we've seen this before. We saw, we saw Godless on every level. Gadol Hador, Gadol in wealth, Gadol in influence. Um, everything was, was, was manifested in Rebbe. We're not going to see the same qualities again until the end of the Gemara period under Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi is described in similar terms. Um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai had taught that there's seven qualities that a Talmud Chacham embodies that are Noel Tzadikim v'Noel Olam that are pleasant for a Tzadik and pleasant for the world and Rebbe had them all. Rebbe was, had Noi, he was pleasant looking, he was strong, he was wealthy, he was the wealthiest man of his generation. We'll learn, we'll learn how he acquired his wealth tomorrow. Oh, if, we, if, if there's Asher Sam, if I'm here tomorrow, well, that'll depend on uh, what happens. Um, he was, Nechubad, he was the most honored man of his generation. He was the wisest man of his time. He was, had Arichus Yami, was long living, and he was himself blessed with righteous children. Rebbe's children, we hear about a lot in the Gemara. In Perkei also, we learned that some of their Torah, Rebbe Gamliel, the son of Rebbe, uh, has his own mission, Perkei Avos, Rebbe Shimon, the son of Rebbe, and others. He's called Rebbeinu Haggadol. And again, the Gemara Gitin says, and maybe it's another exaggerated term, like we saw exaggerated terminology used by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, one of Rebbe's teachers. Um, maybe it's an exaggeration, but apparently having everything manifested without any ambiguity, he is the Gadol Hador. We haven't had that so many times in history. Most Rebbeinu was clearly the Gadol Hador. Rebbe was clearly the Gadol Hador. Ravashi was clearly the Gadol Hador. I can think of maybe a couple other generations that you could say that unequivocally. I would say not so much. We've had such a we're such a fractured people. Uh, the other example that I'm going to pull out of history, and I'm not sure we could say many more. Maybe I'm not thinking of them. I'm going to pull out from the time of the Rishonim, the Rashba. And even there, the Rashba was a uh, the Rashba for period, because then the rush would arise in prominence. You really had the rush and the rashba. It's not, by the way, a put-down to a gadol, the fact that at the same time in history, there was another gadol. It's not, that's not his fault. It just happened to be that you know there were other gadolim of, of, of immense stature. What about the? By the way, this, is a, this in itself, this discussion in itself is a Gemara in Sanhedrin that, that says, you know, this is the undisputed gadol hador, I mean, it says, no, no, because when you had, for example, Yoshua bin Nun, but you also had Allah bin Ar on the Kohen, right? Was, you had other prominent figures. You wanted to say which, which example? Rambam. Rambam, Rambam was not the um, hands-down Galador. He was extremely controversial. They burned, some of his opponents burned his books while he was alive. And then they were uh, Okay, fine, that was later, but in other words, he was in, in his time, even though today, how could you have Rambam? Uh, no, at least on the poly. I mean, everybody, everybody holds the Rambam was 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 giant in stature, but the, the, not not so, not always in, in his days. What? He also lived in a very worthy generation. The Rivid was in the Rambam's generation. The um, you had you had, um, you had uh, slightly later, but you had the Yad Rama. You had you had other prominent figures. The Balitosfos up in up in Europe. Rabino Tam was a contemporary of the Rambam. Yeah. You could say about Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva's maybe a little bit different. Maybe he lacks Chusavos. He wasn't from this, this pure pedigree. Um, how wealthy was Rebbe? <laughs> well, get this description for the Gemara Baba Metzia. This is um, Rebbe's horseman, right? The man who, who, who fed the horses. 
was himself so wealthy, as an extension of Rebbe himself, the horseman was so wealthy, he was wealthier than Shvor Malka, who was the later Sassanid king in Bavel. That's how wealthy Rebbe's horseman was. So go figure Rebbe, Rebbe, Rebbe Yehuda Nasi's wealth. Um, he was also described, the Yushalmi tells us that he was an istanis, he was very finicky with foods. He would eat one meal a day, and that's why on Arab Shabbos and Arab Yantif, he didn't eat. He fasted because he wanted to make sure that he ate Lichvod Shabbos, Kodesh Lichvod Yantif. Um, he lives in times of poverty. We'll have to explain how he came about his wealth. He did come upon his wealth, honestly. Um, but his students were mostly poor, and they all ate at his table. Rebbe had one of these massive tables of history. Like Nehemiah, if you remember, Nehemiah fed all the poor when he first came back to rebuild the walls of Yerushalayim. So Rebbe Yehuda fed everybody at his table. Not everybody, but a lot of people ate at his table. Um, they, he also paid them. They paid, they, 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 he paid them huge stipends, and they all started on learning. It was an ideal model of, of learning. In Europe, in the many yeshivas in Europe, that was the model of learning too. You went to yeshiva, and the Rosh Yeshiva paid your way and provided you with a living, and it was great. It was ideal because you were beholden to the Rosh Yeshiva. Today, not in Dara, because people don't, not every, but some people pay, some people don't, but in some of the yeshivas out there, um, the students pay a tuition and sometimes a pretty uh, hefty tuition, and so there's an attitude like a lot of Americans have, this attitude of, you know, I pay tuition, Rebbe, you know, I call the shots here. I say jump, the Rosh Yeshiva asks how high, kind of an attitude you have. That's not the optimal way of learning Torah. Wait, there's only a high tuition in Torah. Is there? Yeah. Potentially. And some people who but have the means can pay. A lot of people don't have to pay. But right, right. The, the, it, it, they, 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 which is the going rate. Yeah. Which is the going rate. It's, it's not that, I mean, it, it is the going rate. It's definitely the going rate. It's not... They don't charge more than other places. Yeah, if somebody can't afford it by doing that. With that, among other things, that in, in but listen, I'm not here. To, I'm not here to defend Derech. It's one way or the other. I'm just pointing out this model was certainly better than the Derech model, where you know they were paying you as opposed to the other way around. Um, yeah. In any case, in any case, um, he personally, famously, never derived benefit from his wealth um, because he knew that all the benefit we get in Olam Hazet comes at the expense of what we get in Olam Haba. Uh, and he wanted none of it. And he, he, he spoke about this. In fact, famously, Rebbe tells us in the Gemara Kisubos, he says, even my little finger took no pleasure from this world. It was all about Olam Haba. Um, we will learn about Rebbe, and we'll learn about uh, the Mishnah, and the, 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 really the finishing of the, 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 this, the, the, this, this immense uh, period of the, of the Tanaim at the very end, um, either tomorrow or next week, depending on, uh, on, on what Hashem decides will be with this weather. All right, have a, have a good evening.